0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the living word of God for us today.
1: Thank you, Connie and Nate. My name is Lloyd Shadrach. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Uh, We we remind uh, you of that because I know, especially at the beginning of the year, we have a lot of guests in the room. We have two congregations, one here at Brentwood and one at Franklin. And so Rob Sweet and I, we are team, we believe in team teaching, and so we rotate between these two congregations, and so next week, of course, you'll get Rob. Uh, This summer, I I started uh, riding a bike. I I got a bike, and it's not one of those road bikes with the curved handles. It's got the straight handle, but it does have the little skinny wheels, and um, I I, I gave up my rollerblades. Now, a lot of you don't know this, but I rollerbladed for years, and... uh, to the uh, chagrin of my wife, because uh, it, it you know you can kill yourself on rollerblades for sure, and uh, now my kids don't mock me anymore because you know you're rollerblading through the neighborhood. They think it looks silly for their dad to rollerblade. Uh, but I started riding a bike for exercise, and um, I'm riding on the roads out you know in our our, our neck of the woods out back, uh, cottonwood uh, toward Leaper's Fork that kind of thing. I was riding on Monday this week. And uh, I've noticed, you know, cause I'm just kind of starting to ride this bike that my hands get numb. Those of you who ride bikes know this happens, I guess, but you know, I'm not wearing gloves. My hands get numb. And so I'm riding along and, and I'll shake my hands out. You know, just every once in a while I get a rest, I shake my hand out, shake my hand out. And I was riding, you know, maybe going 20, 25 miles an hour and, and I'm shaking my left hand out and I'm thinking my ring's on my left hand. I'm thinking, I think it'd come off. And I look over at my left hand, just watching it shake. And then I came back to the to, to my road. I kid you not... I was on the edge of a ditch and you know how skinny those tires are. They're so skinny. There was no distance between the tire and the ditch and it would just happen just like that. And I said, and I got back. I I didn't go in the ditch and I got back over but I'll tell you the rest of the ride, you know, I'm focused on the road and not on shaking my hand. I got distracted. I generally ride about an hour and uh, I could have ended it all in about two seconds. That's the way it works. Uh, Something very similar can happen in families and organizations, and I, mean, I say certainly in churches and certainly in ours in this sense. We, we start heading in a direction and we get distracted, and we can end up in a ditch. And if not end up in a ditch, most certainly we can end up over time where we weren't intending to go. And it's the reason I tell that story to kind of set us up to say it's the reason why Rob and I feel like every Fall, so to speak. I know it's really hot right now, but you know, school's starting. That we'll take this season right here at the beginning of a school year and remind ourselves what's the main thing that we need to keep our eyes on? The, what's the thing we don't need to forget as a community of faith? Okay? And so that's what these next few weeks are going to look like. I'm doing the introduction of that uh, today. Now, when we think of the main thing, uh, this is review. Uh, we go to our mission, okay? A, a mission statement. This is this is why we exist and what we do. It's up here on the screen. If you look at it, uh, we exist to glorify God and make disciples. That's why every church exists, and then every church expresses that uniquely. And our unique expression is by helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. If you're a guest here, let me tell you just quickly what that means. It means we believe the spiritual life is the wholehearted life and that means in our transformation and our growth with Christ it involves yes our thoughts but it's also our emotions and our desires and our choices that makes the heart we got to bring our whole heart and God transforms our whole heart and what that produces quite frankly is a, is a changed heart which means we have a renewed mind uh, we have healthy relationships we have a satisfied soul and a very active faith. See, that, that's the whole heart being changed by God. How do we, how do, we do that? Well, we, we have a little diagram. Again, look at this, the side screens. We call this our discipleship pathway. It is, it's a pencil drawing on a napkin that we had you draw several months back. And it shows these, two, the, these fundamental components of the pathway. There are two squares, top and bottom. Y'all, that's... That's a corporate commitment that if you're a member at fellowship, you make, we make together. Your church and your group. uh, Being together like this on a regular basis matters. Going to church matters. Being together like this matters. But it's not enough. You need to be in a group. You need to be in a smaller context where you're known and, and you know others. And it's why Will and JJ are up here last week, this week. We'll be talking about it next week and the next to say, look, stop at a connect point because you may, you know, I I shouldn't say, we all think we don't need connection and community, but according to the Bible, we can't live without it. And this is our invitation to step into a community of faith. So you've got our, our, our mission and our discipleship pathway. These are the main things. Now you would think <clears throat> I would <clears throat> as simple as those two things are that, that uh that we'd remember it. But the the truth is we don't. And um so what Rob and I want to do is to explore the scriptures and, and I want to you know, some of you, I think sometimes you'd be thinking, gosh, you know, we're going to do this. Why don't you guys do that at a leader's meeting or something? I I assure you, you will not be bored as we move through this series. And we're going to look at our mission in a way that we've never looked at it before. So it's not about taking each word or phrase and breaking it apart. It's something totally different. We're going to open our Bibles and God's going to give us a picture of our mission that I think is going to well, I'll say this, if we really get it, and, and I'm, I believe this with all my heart on the conviction of the God's word and his spirit in us, you will never be the same. And neither, we, neither will we as a, as a church. Okay, with that, let me ask you a question. How many of you have heard of what's called the picture superiority effect? You ever heard of the picture superiority effect? You know, most people are shaking their heads. No, actually, you, you have. Let me, let me say it this way. That's kind of the scientific, you know, gobbledygook, research, terms, whatever for this. A picture is worth a thousand words. <laughs> the picture superiority effect. Academic papers call it that. Research has absolutely verified this, that when you see text and you read text, Um, three days later, you will recall 10% of it. When you see a picture, an image, a a symbol, if you will, three days later, you're going to recall 65% of it. I mean, you're talking almost 600% more. In other words, if you want to remember something, don't write it down. What? Draw a picture. (laughs) And, And you will remember that. I want you to think with me a moment you know, from, a, from a biblical worldview because when they do the research, basically what they say is that, that we have evolved and developed that evolutionary trait for a, for a purpose kind of moves us to the top of the food chain. Now, what we believe is that God created us with the picture superiority effect hardwired into human beings made in his image. And therefore, just track with me here, would it not make sense that if God wants us to remember something, okay, that he would give us a picture? That that just seems to make reasonable sense. That if God wired us to remember by way of an image that he would... He would take whatever is most important for us to remember and he would give it to us in a picture. I think the most important thing that God could give us to remember is it's gonna be something around his character, right? This is the character of God. It's gonna be something around his purposes, his plans. If I could use this term, I think he would say, I want you to see my heart. Don't ever forget the heart of God. Now, If you found yourself on Family Feud and the question popped up, name the image, the symbol, the picture that when seen most reminds you of Christianity. You see it and you go, that's about Christianity. What would the image or the symbol be? Say it out loud. The cross, yes. And and, and rightly so, the centrality of the cross. But here's something I want you to think about. If we open the Bible and we start in Genesis and we go to Revelation and we pay attention and say, what picture does God give us that he does not want us to forget? What picture okay, of, we can say it this way, of his heart, himself, his character, his plans and purpose. What what picture does he give us that we're not to forget? Would it be the cross? What Rob and I want to suggest, and I'm going to give the introduction in a moment, is that when we look at the Bible, y'all, it's not the cross that God says, Don't forget this picture. It's going to be fun as we move through this. I'm going to give a survey today. We're going to dive deeper over the next four weeks. Uh, I'm going to start uh, in this way. Psalm 78. We've been in the Psalms for the summer, but I'm going to launch out of Psalm 78 to a Bible survey. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 78 now. I'll spend a few moments on it, uh, giving us some context, and, and there's something buried within the the psalm itself that's going to send us on an exploration of other texts that, send, that gives us this picture God gives. Psalm 78, if you turn there in your Bibles. Uh, Connie read it a moment ago. Uh, it, it's it, The first part of it is... It sets up what he's going to cover next. I want you to read it with me. Just follow along in your Bibles as I'm reading. This is God's word to us today. The psalmist says this, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. This is in a, I'm gonna teach you something in a lesson. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has <clears throat> done. This psalm, you all, is unlike any of the other psalms we covered this summer. Um, this is, it's called a historical narrative, it's a historical song, historical psalm, but it's also, we could put it in this category, it's a teaching psalm. You know, you know, most Psalms and the ones many of us, we cover, the ones we cover this summer, are directed to God. They're, they're, they're directed in praise to God. Do you notice how this one begins? He, he's not talking to God, is he? He's talking to the people of God. He says, I want you guys to listen. I've got a lesson that I want to teach you. Everybody with me on that? So, so this is to the people of God. I'm going to give you a history lesson, and there's some things you need to know. <laughs> the Purpose, again, he states super clear right here on the front end. Look at verse 5. He says, God, he established a testimony in Jacob, (coughs) excuse me, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children So that they should set their hope in God, fundamental statement, so that they should set their hope in God, trust God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers and grandfathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God." In the most basic sense, can I say this? And this ties to our mission in the sense of we're we're to make disciples. He's describing disciple making. Disciple making being passing on the truths of God to this generation to pass on to the next. Is that not what he's saying here? And so he's he's describing for us the 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 process of passing on the truths about who God is, God's purposes, God's plans. I don't want you to miss this because it's I I do think we can take that and go, you know, what he's really saying here, and when he talks about what he's teaching, he's talking about passing along answers to the most fundamental questions in life. Who am I? Why am I here? What's it all about? Where's it all going in the end? These are questions of God and his purpose and his plans. I want to give you a bird's eye view of the psalm itself. Time-wise doesn't allow us to cover the whole, and and we really don't need to this morning. I'll I'll, I'll launch us from it in a moment. It is the second longest psalm in in the Bible behind Psalm 119. It is a history lesson. So let me give you that. This is a cliff note version of the psalm if you read it. And I encourage you to read it because here's how the psalm plays out after he gives this introduction. Okay, I'm going to teach you this. You're going to know this because you've got to pass it on to your kids. And then he recounts their history. Historically, it's from the Exodus out of Egypt. It's the time in the wilderness, and it's right up to when God anoints David king. That's what he recounts in their history. And here's how the psalm goes, okay? We're not going to read the whole. It goes like this. He says, God did wonders to deliver you from bondage in Egypt. You were in the desert, no water, and God made water come out of a rock. And then he says, and this is how you responded. And then he says, you're in the wilderness and had uh, uh, no provisions and God made provision for you all through the wilderness years. And this is how you responded. And he says, and then when you got to the promised land, there were enemies greater than you and God wiped them out on your behalf. And then he gave you vineyards you didn't even plant. And this is how you responded. That's how the psalm goes. It recounts just these unbelievable acts of God on their behalf and their response. If I could summarize the whole psalm and kind of how the record goes, and the record goes, and the record goes, it goes like this God is faithful, you're not. God is faithful, you're not. God is faithful. You're not. That, that's the way the song goes, and then it, it ends, again, with, it ends on God's faithfulness, on their behalf. I have us in this psalm, though, because they ask a question that is the question of life. And that question leads us to the picture. God does not want us to forget. I want you to look with me at verse 17. I've got one, two, three, four, five. I've got six places where basically the text says, and you were unfaithful, and you were unfaithful. I'm not gonna read those, but I wanna grab one of them, and it begins in verse 17. Notice what it says. This is after all of God's faithfulness to them. Yet they sinned still more against him Rebelling against the Most High in the desert, <clears throat> they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. Here comes the question. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? This is the this is the question that needs to sit upon us. <clears throat> Can God spread a table <clears throat> in the wilderness? Let me say first of all, that when they asked the question, they weren't starving nor dehydrated. God had provided for them, okay? So they were provisioned by God. But they asked the question. Every time it says, and they were unfaithful, they were unfaithful in light of God's provision. And what, what I want us to think about is not what they did, I mean, we know what they did. They, they acted in unfaithfulness. They didn't trust God. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the question is, why? Why? I mean, some of them had mud on some of their old clothes that were from the Red Sea, probably. I mean, we're within this <clears throat> historically that these miracles were their fathers. They, they, they were so close to them, and yet they didn't trust God. And I'm going, why didn't you trust him? Well, it's, it's wrapped up in this question. It, this is their heart, okay? This is where their heart's expressed. Can God set a table in the wilderness? <clears throat> you notice in verse 16 or 18, it says, uh, they demanded food they craved. Now, what's the the food that they crave? Don't turn there. I'm going to read it. But Numbers 11 tells us. It describes what's happening right here. I've got it in the New Living Translation because I think it helps us understand it. Moses records this. Then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain. Oh, for some meat! They exclaimed, We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. We had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic we wanted. But now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. And then you know, I go, oh my gosh. You know, don't you kind of go, what do you got... Verse 25 in the psalm says, this manna was the bread of heaven. I want you to think about what they're, what they're saying, okay? And this is their heart. They're saying this. Um, look, we could, have, <clears throat> we could have the food of heaven in freedom, or we can have vegetables from Egypt in bondage. That, that's what it's, look, we can have this this, and which one did they choose? Which one did they crave? Think about it. Y'all, they were craving vegetables in Egypt in bondage. And I want to go, what are you guys thinking, right? Oh my gosh. But I don't because I look in the mirror at myself and I see myself in their decisions. Can God spread a table in my wilderness? See, I really believe that is the fundamental question all of us ask all day long, all through life. Watch this week; you're going to have something, you know, get you. Something's going to turn you upside down. <clears throat> and you're not. I'm not saying that you literally ask the question. I'm just saying this underneath whatever you do, you've asked the question, can God spread a table in this mess of my wilderness? We ask it all the time. Why would I suggest this? I, I got a podcast from, um, our son Darden sent me a podcast. It's a business podcast and it's fascinating. It's a, a guy named Jerry, uh, Jerry Colonna, I think. Anyways, he was an early tech investor and, and it's a uh, it's him talking to one of his clients, but it's like a therapeutic session, and Jerry's describing his life as an early tech investor where, y'all, he made more money, okay, in a 24-hour period than all the money you and I in this room would make in a lifetime. He just, he just did. I mean, it's just things were happening. He says it was like Monopoly money. And he's going, I don't know why. I got but what, what he says that's so fascinating is he says, I was miserable. I mean, he couldn't ask for more, but he didn't have enough, and he was miserable. And, and I really believe, we, we talk about this often, that this is the truth of the gospel, that you and I go through life, and we think something will satisfy that longing, that emptiness, that hurt, that ache, that something's missing. We all have that, y'all. And it's wired in us and our fallenness and we think that will satisfy it. But the Bible tells us it won't. It won't. It, it, it's, look, whatever's going on, a, a new spouse isn't going to do it. A, a, a spouse, a, a, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a, a different relationship, a new job, a new home, notoriety, power, respect, uh, beach house, uh, security. It, it won't do it. And we don't say, again, you know, we don't say out loud, can God spread a table in my wilderness? We don't say it out loud, but by our actions, okay, I want to suggest we actually did ask the question, and however we answered it is expressed in our actions. And many times in our lives do we not reach out grab the carbs that fill of this world and then find ourselves an hour later going, that didn't do it. Something's still not, something not right. I'm not whole. This question sends us on our very quick survey. Don't turn there for time. I'm going to read this to you. But I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. I'm going all the way to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 29. You know how the story, the Bible begins the story of the world. God created the heaven and the earth. Seeing all that is in them. And he, six days of creation. God creates all that is. It's the sixth day of creation in which he creates humanity. Okay, And on that day, Genesis 1 29 says... And God said, behold, I have given you, this is man and woman, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Now, why do do we start there? Well, I, I want us to think about how it all began. God began by providing Adam and Eve, and he goes on to say even the animals themselves, with all the food they needed. John Bishop, in a Christianity Today article, writes this. I think it's very helpful. He said, food is a gift. In fact, food is the first gift. In one entirely accurate sense, all things from God's good hands are gifts. But I think food is somehow unique. Open a Bible to Genesis 1 and look at what God does in the creation story. More specifically, look at the verbs God creates, hovers, says, names, separates, makes, blesses, sees, and declares it good. But it isn't until the end of, chap- of the chapter, verse 29, that He gives. That he gives. And what does he give? Food. When properly understood as a gift, it becomes clear that food is a tangible expression of God's love for us. As theologian Norman Wurzba has put it, food is, quote, God's love made Edible. I'm going to move us through a survey, but I want to start in Genesis. And I don't think it inappropriate to say, using a sanctified imagination, and I think a fidelity to the word, that in the garden, God spread a table. Now, not literally, you know what I'm saying, but metaphorically, when you say that? that, because look what happened, look what he did in the garden. He spread a table. This is all you need for life. Here's a meal, every meal you need. He spread a table in the garden. Fast forward, King David. When David wanted to express and and put into words, his own words, his gratitude for God's provision. And th- th- this is like for God's great blessings. The, just the abund- he was overwhelmed with God's great abundant provision. And when he felt that, he wrote a song, and it's the most familiar psalm in the Bible, Psalm 23. I do want you to turn there. Go to Psalm 23. <clears throat> I'm gonna remind you, and most for, are familiar with it, Psalm 23, if... Uh, if you took psalm seventy eight okay, which is a corporate description of god's faithfulness, and you said, "I wonder what if one individual wrote a song about god's faithfulness and provision and bounty, uh, what would that be that'd be psalm twenty three that's what psalm twenty three is. i I, I want to say it this way, and I think it's true. David is describing a satisfied soul. David is describing. Wholehearted life in in Jesus and God. That's what he's describing. You'll remember what he says. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Don't miss that David does not deny or ignore our greatest enemy, death. Death. He doesn't avoid it. But what he says is, because I'm in relationship with you, God, because I'm in relationship with you, death is a mere shadow. I want you to think about that. Uh, You didn't get here this morning without having 150 shadows hit you. I'm looking at you right now, and each one of you have a shadow on you, but you don't even know it. Why? Because it doesn't matter. Because it's it's nothing. David says, Boy, in relationship with God, death, shadow. And then David expresses this picture of the character and goodness of God. And he says, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Can I paraphrase that? You, God, spread a table in my wilderness. Wow. David doesn't here, he does in other places, but he doesn't here ask the question, can you? He simply states the reality. You spread a table in the presence of my enemies. One last passage, go to the right again, and you're going to go to Isaiah. You're going to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, is gone. Unfaithfulness, they're gone. Wiped off at 722. It's going to be about 600 BC that Judah, the southern kingdom, is going to be taken into captivity. So Isaiah is Prophesying, preaching to Judah, the southern kingdom. And when you think of Isaiah, you know, we think of those wonderful passages about Christ, Prince of Peace, all that. This is Isaiah. That's the prophet that does this. But they are in a time that is no good. They are going to be swallowed up, taken into captivity. Assyrians are all around them, constantly attacking them. And they, the, the people of Israel, in Jerusalem in particular, the center representative of the whole of Judah, they. <clears throat> they need to know. that They need a word of hope. You know, like it's just raw. it's terrible. And so they need a word of hope that their unfaithfulness is not gonna negate God's promise to them. They, they're in a bad place and it's due to their unfaithfulness. And they need to be reminded that God God's faithfulness is never in question and that, yes, they, they have been re- rebellious, but in the end, can I say it this way, it's gonna be okay. Why? Because God determines that. God's faithfulness to them. And, and, and they need that. And I want you to notice how God describes their hope. Isaiah 25, look at verse 6. Isaiah speaking, this is God speaking through him on this mountain. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that veil? He will swallow up death. That's the veil forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Oh my gosh, think about this, you all. <clears throat> while their current situation is dire and it goes to worse quite frankly their future hope is secure because of God's faithfulness it's not you know they're they're in a bad place but listen it's not going to end in starvation and tears and pain can you believe this it's going to end in a banquet in a feast In a meal that's overflowing with abundance. God says I got a picture of food I want to give you. And drink. At a table. Again don't turn there. Because time won't allow. We'll go deeper into some of these through the weeks to come. When you go to the last book of the Bible. So we start in Genesis. If you go to Revelation, so this is how it all, it's all gonna end this way. Revelation 19, verse nine. John sees a vision and records it and says, and the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I realize I've moved quickly, but I want to suggest that when we open our when we open our Bibles and and we pay attention to what God is drawing, showing, presenting, Y'all, the thing that he wants us to remember, the picture, the symbol that will hold longer than text per se, it's not the cross. No diminishing of the cross. It's not a fish. It's not an anchor. It's a table. A table. Now the implications of this are so profound We've got to take a few weeks to unpack it, which we will. I want you to close your Bibles right now for a moment, for, for, for the morning. And um, I'm going to invite the band to come out. We will end uh, in this way. <laughs> we'll have a song sung over us, but I, I, want, I want to give you a preview Y'all, we are, um, we're going to do this through August, and then the second week of September, we are going to begin what we do, and that's book studies, and we're going to begin a verse-by-verse study of the book of Colossians. Now, the letter to the Colossians is the most Christocentric letter in the New Testament. What, what does that mean? It means it's the most Christ-centered letter in the New Testament. It, it, it's all about Jesus, his person, his work. In that letter, Paul makes an incredible statement. He says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? Look look, look at Jesus. So, you know, there's this sense to which, I don't want to miss this, the image we're to recall is Jesus, but I want you to think in a very practical sense. We don't know what he looked like. Now, he's pointing to the character of Jesus, certainly. but if jesus could give us something that in his own words would be the thing that would remind us of his person and his work his heart god's character his purposes and plans if jesus could give us an image or a picture that that would be fa- that'd be fabulous wouldn't it you know and so I do want you to connect these dots, and I, and, you, and most of the room already has. The image Jesus gives us, you all, is a table. Jesus didn't say picture the cross, and Jesus didn't say picture an anchor. He didn't say think of a fish. He gave us a table. You understand, that's the table that was in the garden. It's the table that is our future. And he gives us a table right now that we come to. I'm going to ask the ushers, in fact, to pass the elements for the Lord's table. I'm going to ask you to hold the bread and hold the cup. Don't take them because we're going to take them together. If you have placed your faith in Christ, this is what we take this table as representative of our belief in Christ. If you've not trusted Christ, why not trust him right now? And you can, you can simply tell God, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, was buried and rose again, and he did it for me. And by golly, take the bread and the cup as an expression of that faith. You can believe right now. As you hold the bread and the cup, you are at the table of the Lord. I want you to ponder. You know, hold this bread and cup, and I want you to think, is this enough? Because <laughs> that's, that's the question, right? Is this enough? for my wilderness we'll take that together in a moment having sat prayerfully and having listened as Lindsay and the team sing over us a reminder of the Lord's table
2: To the hero and the coward To the prisoner and the soldier To the young and to the older All who hunger, all who thirst All the last and all the first All the paupers and the princes All the fairly have been forgiven All who dream and all who suffer All who've loved and lost another All the chain and all All who follow
1: Always been a table, you all. Was a table in the garden, in the wilderness, today, forever. When we come to the Lord's table, we embody the gospel. We would suggest we embody our mission as a church. Glorifying God and making disciples and helping others find wholehearted life and eat at the table of Christ. There are three great truths. The first is this. Jesus gave his body. He he was the God-man, fully God, fully man. He lived a life we couldn't, as Will mentioned earlier, and he gave his body. It was the Perfect, righteous sacrifice as a human being we didn't need another goat or bull to satisfy the payment of sin we needed a human being that's the body of Christ Lord Jesus for your body broken given to us we say thank you take and eat Seeing the body broken and as we eat it, the first great reality that we embody in ourselves and to the world is that we are in Christ. We are in Christ Jesus. There's a second great reality. I'd like everyone to stand, and and we'll be dismissing in a moment. Stand, you have the cup in your hand. You see, the cup is a symbolic of his blood, his life. Life is in the blood. His life poured out for us. And therefore, in Christ, we are also with each other. What, what do you mean? We are, we are in the body of Jesus. And so, we belong to each other. We're part of the same body. And that's why... Communion, the Lord's table is You don't eat alone (laughs) We come with each other to the table So we are in Christ Secondly, we are with others That's what we embody and declare Every time we partake in the Lord's table Now the way I want us to Remind ourselves of that is I don't want you to drink your cup I want you to exchange your cup with someone else and as you do I want you to simply say I am with you because we are in Christ members of one body so turn wherever you need to go exchange your cup and then take and drink it I hope we get a little better at this, and, and it'll take us some time, but this is what I want to say. Here's all I want to say. You all, the, the taking of the Lord's table in the New Testament was not a somber affair. It was a meal. Now, I know we can't all drink a big old, eat a big old meal in here, but it's a celebration. It, there's reflection, to be sure, right? But I'm just telling you, the Lord's table... I don't know. You don't go to a table and everybody's just kind of, you know what I'm saying? So we need to, we'll grow in that as a community of faith. We are in Christ, we are with others at the table, but there's a third thing, and this relates so, is, so to our mission as a community of faith. We don't do this just for ourselves, we do it for others, for the world. In Christ, with others, for the world. When you turn in a moment, it's a turning to the world, our world, where we take the life at the table to those who do not have it yet. We will cement that by repeating that phrase I just said to you. Look up on the screen. There's in Christ, with others for the world now I'm going to count to three and we're going to say it together one, two, three in Christ with others for the world this week when life knocks you down and the question comes up can God spread a table in this wilderness can God be enough in this the answer is yes He's demonstrated it in the table of the Lord. Come to it and trust him. There are people up front that are here to pray with you. If you would like someone to pray with you and you just sense that, don't resist that sense. Come up and let us pray with you. If those who are praying would come up and stand at the front of the aisles, we'll be here to pray for you. You are dismissed. God bless.